0: Thank you, worship team. That's wonderful. And your praises are so great. That was wonderful. Thanks for sharing those. I'm glad we're here together to continue to look at um, everything Mark has to tell us about Jesus. We're almost at the end of the chapter. We're going to talk about being bound today. And... uh, I had to tell this quick story on Ted. He loves to tell the story of binding his brother Andy. He liked to torture his brother Andy as often as he could. How many of you knew Andy and Susan Kitchens? They're at the church here. Okay, so you know how sweet they are. I don't know why Andy's still sweet, because he should have been beating his brother up. But Ted tells the story of his mom had um, one of those army green duffel bags that she would put her laundry in that she wanted to iron. And, and back then he said she would dampen the clothes, open up that duffel bag, throw the wet clothes in there and then tie that thing tight. So Ted got this incredible idea of what if I stuff little Andy into the duffel bag and put a few clothes on top of them. So as she's reaching for the clothes, all of a sudden she'll touch the top of Andy's head and she'll scream and it'll be so fun. Andy, don't you want to do that? And Andy says, okay. And so, (laughs) Ted's mom has told them she's going to go do ironing. So they run up there. Ted pulls out a few clothes, stuffs Andy in the green duffel bag, stuffs some wet clothes on top of him, ties that string tight. He falls over on the ground. And Ted says, just wait for mom. It's going to be so great. But cartoons were on. And Ted went downstairs. And he watched a cartoon. And then he watched another cartoon. And then he kept watching cartoons. Meanwhile, his mom is out back gardening. Nobody's with Andy. <laughs> a, I don't know what made him remember. All of a sudden, this thought came in his mind my brother, Andy. <laughs> and he runs upstairs, and Andy's crying and rolling around uh, in the duffel bag. <laughs> And so Ted untied him, and he was free until Ted's next adventure of (laughs) tying up Andy. And I thought about that story. This is really a great picture, even though it's a funny story, of someone who needed to be saved from bondage. This is our story. We're in the darkness, waiting for someone to come and save us from our bondage. But our Savior had to first be in bondage himself. So this was a hard chapter. And it was all about Jesus being bound for us. Did you notice that? Starts out, he's with the Jewish authorities. They've got him tied up. We saw that last week. And they're, you know... um, judging him and criticizing him and pronouncing a verdict on him. And then in this chapter, we see them tie him up and take him and leave him with the Roman authorities, and he's tied up there. And then we see that they drag him and they take him somewhere, and he's tied up and they beat him there. And then they take him to a cross, and he's bound on the cross by nails in his hands, and then he's taken off of the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea binds him in linen cloths and lays him in a tomb. The truth is Jesus physically arrived in our world bound in swaddling cloths wrapped around his body and he left this world bound in the same kind of linen cloths wrapped around his body. He did that for us. He left the splendor of heaven, the glory that was his, to leave to live for 33 years on earth, wrapped up in our humanity. From the moment he got here all the way until his death. From the beginning of eternity, God had a plan for you and for me so we could know him. And Jesus was the plan Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So from his physical birth until his physical death, he was wrapped in humanity for the sole purpose of your salvation. He was bound by this sacred purpose. So all of the tying and the nailing that we see and the wrapping in chapter 15 was not man's idea. It was planned by God from the beginning of eternity for us. Jesus allowed himself to be physically bound so we could be spiritually free. Jesus was bound by obedience. It was the will of the Father that His only Son become a guilt offering for our sin. And we know that Jesus chose to obey this. Look at Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We saw Jesus... Last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was about 3 a.m., it was very dark, the disciples are sound asleep, Jesus is very alone, the time has come for God's plan of salvation to be unveiled for three years, Jesus has loved without limit. On this earth. He has taught without reservation. Now he needs to die. Without hesitation. And we see him on the ground. In agony. Sweating drops of blood. As he considers. Finishing the plan. And burying our sin. On the cross. And it's. Our joy to read these words. That he says to the father in submission. Not what I will. What you will, and when he said these words, he bound himself to the suffering that lay ahead of him so he would complete the plans of God for our salvation. Now it's early morning, and Jesus is taking his final, last steps to the cross. Look at verse 1 of 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Okay, last week we left Jesus. He's in the clutches of the Jewish court. But morning is coming quickly, and the religious court of the Jews must be exchanged for the civil court of the Romans. So it's about 6 a.m. The Sanhedrin gather together. They confirm their meeting the night before, which was very illegal. They confirm their verdict that Jesus deserved death. Their charge, blasphemy. Blasphemy means attributing something to yourself that belongs to God alone. They're hoping to convince the Romans to go along with their sentence of death, but they were relying on them because the Jews could not kill Jesus themselves legally, so the Roman authorities could either ratify or rescind the Sanhedrin's death sentence. The problem was, blasphemy was not a charge that the Romans would use to execute an individual. So in this verse, we see them talking together and saying, you know, what are we going to do? How can we get our our verdict to go through? And so they make a decision on how they're going to present their case to the Romans. The Jewish leaders would bind Jesus with their ropes and their false accusations, present him to the Gentiles as a traitor to Rome. They're substituting their verdict of blasphemy for the, the verdict of treason before the Romans. So how did they do this? They turned Jesus' words around about being the Messiah. And they made it a traitorous political claim against Rome. And so with Jesus bound among them, picture the sun coming up. There's this pitiful group of Jewish leadership. They've got Jesus tied. They're dragging him through the city. They're confident they're strong, they're quick, they don't want anybody much to see them, and they're leaving Caiaphas' house, they're heading to the palace where governors would stay during Passover to try to keep the crowds down, and they're bringing Christ bound with the verdict in their mind of treason against Rome. Look at Luke 23 on your verse sheet. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ a king. Now, the Roman civil trial that Jesus went through would have three stages. First, they take him to Pilate, he is the governor to the Palestine area. Even though he lived in Caesarea, he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived near the Mediterranean, and for those of you who have been to Israel, you can actually see where he lived. It was, um, the ruins are still there, and there's actually a stone that has his name on it. This is where he came from. He's in the city now because he's trying to keep the peace again with Passover, and when he discovers Jesus is a Galilean, he is very happy because he knows Jesus is innocent, so he turns him over to Herod. That will be the second trial. This is Herod Antipas, the Roman ruler in Galilee. He happened to also be in Jerusalem at the time. He is the same Herod who put John the Baptist to death. He's also the son of the Herod who put all the children to death 33 years earlier trying to kill Jesus. He is also the man that Jesus liked to call a fox. Now, from Luke we learn that even though Jesus answered Caiaphas' question about who he really was, and we'll see that Jesus answers Pilate's question of who he really is, Herod asked him more questions, question, question, question. Herod was a curious guy. He was interested in knowing him. He knew his friend was John the Baptist, his cousin. Jesus never said one word in the presence of Herod. And I think it's because his time was up. John had spent many hours talking to Herod about who God was and his need for God. And Herod had rejected it. So Jesus did not answer Herod a word. So that wasn't very much fun for them. So Herod and his men, they dressed Jesus up in a robe and teased him and mocked him and had some fun with him. And then they just turned him back over to Pilate. So first he's been bound by the Jews, now he's bound by the Gentiles. Look at verse 2. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. We're going to see this is not so much a trial before Pilate as it is a trial of Pilate. Pilate hated the Jews. The Jews hated Pilate. And as he stands there in authority and he's listening to the Jews and they're going on and on and throwing these accusations out about Jesus, Pilate smells something fishy. He figures out the real trouble here. He's listening to their accusations. They're trying to paint Jesus in this black light as a revolutionary and a troublemaker and that he's trying to commit sedition against Rome and the only thing that catches Pilate's ear is this idea that Jesus claims to be king because Pilate knows if someone's claiming to be king then that means they would probably want to overthrow the true king of Rome, Caesar. So Pilate specifically asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus has an interesting answer. It really means the designation is yours. Or, yes, it is as you say. So he is saying, yes, I'm the king, but he's got a qualification on his yes. He's implying that Pilate's concept of being a king is very different than Jesus' concept. And so as Israel's Messiah, we know... Jesus was the king, but there's no way Pilate would understand that. And so that's it. That's all Jesus says. And this is shocking to Pilate. Picture the people that came to Pilate's palace facing crucifixion. What do you think they did in there? Even if they were guilty, they begged and pleaded and pronounced their innocence and went on and on and on. This is what Pilate was used to. never had someone who was innocent come in and be as quiet as a Passover lamb like Jesus was. Pilate had never known someone bound by a sacred purpose. Look at verse 6. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We can almost hear the cries of the Jews Demanding, hey, you, you have to release someone. It's the Passover. Release someone for us. Release someone. And Pilate sees this as an opportunity to get around the murderous envy of the Sanhedrin, which Pilate understands. And so he goes out to the crowd. He knows Jesus isn't guilty. And he thinks, I can ask them what they want to do. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Now, if you notice in this chapter, Pilate continually says that, king of the Jews, because he's doing it just to irritate the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders. He totally sees through their hearts here, and he knows that every time he calls him the king of the Jews, it just totally upsets this Jewish leadership. So he says it again. What he doesn't know is the Sanhedrin have already... Split up, worked their way into the crowd, got the crowd built up. They had beat him to the punch and began to push the crowd to um, go on their side. So they decide they want Barabbas. Here's the truth about Barabbas. He was guilty of the very things the Jewish people are saying that Jesus is guilty of. He was guilty creating uprisings against Rome. And he was a murderer. We learn from other scripture, a thief. He was a rebellious zealot. And this is who they want, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. When they chose Barabbas over Jesus, the people were saying they loved lawlessness more than the law. They loved war more than they loved peace. They loved violence more than they loved love. So what are they going to do about Jesus? Well, the chanting began, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Louder and louder. And we all can't stop but remember just a few days earlier, Jesus rode on a donkey into the city and heard, Hosanna! 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 How can we explain this change? I think there's two ways. One, the crowds wouldn't be exactly the same. I do think probably some of the same people were in both crowds. But this was a crowd that were sort of puppets in the hands of the Jewish leaders. But secondly, Jeremiah gives us an answer. Look on your verse sheet. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jesus understands it. That was why he was here. To cleanse the heart of deceitful, wicked man, And that is why he would die. So, hey, Pilate's heart is a good example for us here. What's his heart like? His heart is weak. His heart is sick. He knows a man is innocent. And he still condemns him to death. Why? So he can satisfy and please the crowds. And we learn from the other Gospels that he was afraid the people might complain about him to the emperor, and he sure didn't want that to happen. So let's give up a man's life instead. Sending Jesus to his death and releasing a criminal like Barabbas was a horrendous verdict. It was covered in unrighteousness. It was covered in injustice. And isn't that the story of our redemption? The fact that the guilty one suffered, I mean, did not, that, let me read this right, I'm going to say it wrong. The guiltless one was delivered to die while those who were guilty were set free. That's our story. Jesus for Barabbas. Jesus for us. It's our redemption story. Look at Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Before Pilate handed Jesus to the soldiers to be crucified, he had Jesus flogged, or a better word there is scourged, which is worse than flogging. In order to do this, this was a brutal beating. They did this to male offenders uh, before they were executed. The prisoner would have been stripped. He would have been tied to a post and then whipped across the back, not by one guard, but by many guards, not by a long little whip by a short whip that had bone and metal put into the end of it, not limited by how many times they could hit him, no limit. And many men who were on their way to execution died right there at the flogging before they even got there. We know this could not happen to Jesus because he was to pay for our sins on a cross. But he was weakened, he was beaten, he was bloody, And then he is handed over for crucifixion. Now the possible methods of death for high treason, there were three of them. One was crucifixion. One was death by wild beasts in an arena. That way lots of people could watch. And one was exile. The crowd had a choice. The crowd cried crucifixion. Pilate wanted them to be happy. What they didn't know was that prophecy would be fulfilled while Jesus hung on a cross. Look at Galatians 3. He had to die on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Look at verse 16. to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Okay, Jesus had been outside while he was flogged like this, probably in a public square so people could watch. Some people believe that Pilate encouraged the crowd to watch this, thinking maybe they would take some sympathy on Jesus and decide they didn't want him crucified anymore. We know the crowd did not do that. After his flogging, he's taking inside the palace, the praetorium. This is where the governors resided. This was in the fortress Antonia. And there they called the entire company of soldiers to mock Jesus. We can't know exactly for sure how many that is. Normally a Roman cohort would include 600 men. So there may have been hundreds of them that were not on duty that day. However many that would have been, they could have all been there. We also could think about that Pilate came from Caesarea. He probably brought two or 300 of his own soldiers with him. So there could have been two or three hundred of pilot soldiers with him at this point. And while the cross is being prepared, the soldiers decide to treat the king of the universe with great royal mockery as if being a king, Jesus being a king, was the funniest thing they'd ever heard of in their life. So they stripped him again to put a purple robe on him, which would have denoted royalty. And in this case, it was probably just a faded military cloak. Then they set a crown of thorns on his head. Those thorns were probably about this long. I thought this was interesting. When the soldiers bound Jesus' head with the crown of thorns, they unknowingly illustrated God and his curse On sinful humanity being set on his son, Jesus Christ. You remember Adam and Eve. You remember the sin that they committed in the garden. God proclaimed a curse of toil and thorns on them. Look on your verse sheet at Genesis 3. To Adam God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. We see that curse of Adam's sin sitting on the brow of Jesus Christ on his way to the cross. And when we witness the actions of the soldiers, we realize those who reject the Son of God reject God the Father. He was the Son of Glory they clothed in a faded coat. He was the creator of the universe they crowned with thorns. He was the ruler of heaven and earth that they mocked as a king. He was the God of love they hit over and over again on his head. He was the Prince of Peace that felt their spit, the absolute worst thing they could think to do to someone to show how much they disdain them was to spit on them. And so after all this, he's not even on the cross yet. Now it's time for Jesus' crucifixion. And you read in your homework all the details of Christ's crucifixion. We can read in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, other chapters of Isaiah, other passages. In the Bible now crucifixion to be bound by a cross that's one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment there ever was devised Mark's account is very restrained because Mark's focus was what agony Jesus was going through spiritually as much as anything John tells us that Jesus carried his own cross as far as he could he fell exhausted near the city gate I don't know how he could carry it at all because when they first gave it to him, here's how they did this. Four soldiers, they created a little box. The guilty guy walked in the middle, carried their own cross beam, which weighed at least 100 pounds. And Jesus did this for a while and then could not go any further outside the gate. In front of this foursome was a soldier who carried a plaque that listed the crime of the criminal that was coming behind them. Or sometimes they put the crime of the criminal across the neck on a rope, hanging on the criminal himself. This was the board that they later attached to the cross to define the crime of the person hanging there. And then they walked the longest possible way to the place of execution that they could come up with so people they would say could be warned this is what happens if you disobey with the Roman government but they also did it because it was fun to have people mocking and yelling and spitting and throwing stones at Jesus along the way When Jesus could not carry his cross any longer, then the soldiers would have taken their spear and tapped the shoulder of someone that was nearby. In this case, it was Simon. And when they tapped him, they were saying, you carry the cross. And there was no denying that's what you had to do. He either was someone who lived in Jerusalem, but there was a big Jewish community in northern Africa. He might have been coming from there to go to the Passover. The neat part of this story is there is some speculation that Simon and his sons came to know the living God after Simon carried his cross, which is so awesome to think about. And here's why they think that. Mark mentions the names of Simon's son in here. And what that means is he really felt like his readers would know them once they read it in there. And so it seems like they possibly got involved with the new church of Jesus Christ. We see the name Rufus mentioned often in the Church of Rome. Maybe it was one of Simon's sons, Rufus. Okay, let's look at verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which he did not take, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Okay, just outside the gates of Jerusalem, it seems like there was a place that looked like death itself. It was barren. It was sort of a knoll. It was rocky. It was um, bald of any kind of vegetation. And it looked like a skull. In Aramaic, we call that Golgotha because that is the Aramaic word for skull. For us, we hear it as Calvary. That is the Latin word for skull. Another possibility, maybe it got its name for the fact that this is where executions took place. There may have been skulls there. This is where they led Christ. And what they would have done was taken the cross, laid it flat on the ground, and then stretched Jesus out on top of it, pulled his arms out, and then they would have put a nail in each of his wrists. Then they would have picked the cross up and already in the hole on the ground they had some stands underneath. They would have lifted the cross and dropped it down into that stand and then they would have drove the nails into his feet. But you and I know it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was our sin. He was bound to a tree Bound by our sin. Look at First Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Second Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. They offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. This would have eased his pain a little bit. And I read in uh, some history books that there were women, I thought this was so awesome, that just came and went in that place of crucifixion to do this to the criminals, to try to help their pain when they came on the cross. Jesus refused it because he had to bear man's sin in full consciousness. He wanted to taste the true depth of man's sin. And then a victim's personal belongings. Remember I told you about the four men that, came, that followed Christ and led him, and then you had the guy in the front. Those were the people that got to get the clothing of whoever was being executed. A Jewish man wore five articles of clothing. An inner robe, an outer robe, a belt, and uh, sandals and something on his head. And so, as Jesus has just been placed on the cross, there beneath the cross, these men are coldly throwing dice to decide which article of Jesus' clothing they want to take. And this made me think of John 1. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Look at verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charges against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself." In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself, they said. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We know from Mark that the crucifixion took place at about 9 a.m. That would have been the third hour for Jewish time. Again, Pilate got the last word by the board that he had hanging over Jesus' head, the king of the Jews. And we know from the rest of the Gospels that the whole saying was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was written in Greek. It was written in Latin. It was written in Hebrew. So everybody could read it and understand it. Pilate knew this would infuriate the Jewish leaders, and he was right. And they sent a group that came to him and said, we want you to have it say, he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what is written is written. And it stayed. And we think, oh, that was just because Pilate was being vengeful. But with Jesus' true title over his head, God was vindicating his son even up to the point of his death. This is who Jesus really was. Jesus was the king, crowned at last raining from a tree. On either side of Jesus hung two robbers, most probably friends of Barabbas, wishing they got off as easy as Barabbas. Remember James and John when they came to Jesus saying, we want to be on your right, we want to be on your left. And Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Yes, we can. The robbers were occupying the very places. James and John thought they would be able to occupy. Looking at the faces closest to the cross, we see some interesting things. We see the soldiers laughing along with the crowd as Jesus hangs in the air. We see the robbers on either side mocking and insulting him. We see curious people passing by on their way to the marketplace, yelling insults at him. And we see all the Jewish leadership laughing, yelling out insults. And then unknowingly, one of them yells out a deep truth. He saved himself. But he can't save others. No, he saved others, but he can't save himself. That was true. If Jesus wanted to save us, he had to sacrifice himself. He wouldn't save himself. That was part of God's plan. To descend from the cross was not a physical impossibility for Jesus. It was a spiritual impossibility if he was going to walk the path of Messiahship that God had laid out for him. One deep truth in the insults. One deep lie in the Salts. the Jewish leaders say, come down from the cross and then we will see and we will believe. Okay, first of all, this is backwards. Faith is about believing and then seeing. And secondly, these guys had seen and seen and seen some more. Miracle after miracle. It didn't matter what they saw. If Jesus had decided to pull the nails out of his wrists, climb down the cross, and walk up to them, they still would not have believed because what it takes to come to Christ is to recognize we have a sinful heart and we need salvation. And that is not where the Jewish people were. Luke tells us, which I love this part of the story, of this horrible story, that one of the robbers came to that place in his heart to realize his sin, his need and his desire to be with Jesus. He asked for his mercy and Jesus told him you will be with me today in paradise. This Truth and this action from the cross has been a huge blessing to the Christian faith. Because when a guilty thief acknowledges a sin, cries out to Jesus for mercy, Jesus forgives him and takes him to eternity. That very day, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that heaven, we can't get there by any great deed that we have done. Nothing but solely on the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachtini. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus had been on the cross for three hours. And at noon, suddenly, something finally silenced this angry mob. Blackness, a strange blackness, covered the whole land at noon. It was like the plague, the curse that God sent in Egypt many years earlier. And I think the fact that God sent darkness at soon... Shows his omnipotence, but it is also showing some something else. He's sending it on those who have decided to reject the light of the world. You reject the light of the world, here's what's left. Total darkness. No matter how dark it was for the people, we know it was much darker for Jesus because during this blackness, the perfect, eternal communion between the Father and the Son was broken. That is when Jesus cries out, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Communion was broke, but God had not deserted Jesus. Jesus had walked the exact path that God had laid out for him. He would not. God would not desert him. So we must remember that this is true about Psalm 22. It begins in anguish. It ends in victory. So when we hear Jesus say, my God, my God, this is an affirmation of his faith. He still believes in his Father. He's crying out. And he understands it's going to start with anguish. It's going to end with triumph. There are tons of... Prophecies in the Old Testament that start with despair and quite never get often. Jesus didn't choose to speak those. He spoke the one that ended in triumph. He knew God would be there for him. So what was the abandonment by God? In that dark hour, the wrath of God that we deserve fell on Jesus. And we know there was no barrier, and there could be no barrier, Between the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the only thing that could come between them was sin. And since we know Jesus was sinless, we know it was our sin that caused the separation in their communion. And I don't think any of Jesus' physical pain compared to the spiritual pain of Jesus bearing the world's sins. There's no way we can grasp it. Here's the only thing I thought about. If somehow we could grasp the nature of the punishment for sin, which is eternal separation from God, we might be able to grasp a little bit of the depth of the agony borne by Jesus. Eternal separation by God is what he was feeling as he was on the cross. But he was bound to do it because he was bound by a sacred purpose. So with open arms, Jesus accepted God's wrath over our sin and made it possible for us to have free access to the very presence of God. Jesus cried out in Aramaic, which they didn't expect, and some people misunderstood what he was yelling. They thought he was calling for Elijah the prophet. Some Jews believed that you could call on Elijah. He would help you if you were righteous in times of great need. Um, But since they didn't consider Jesus righteous, they probably were continuing to mock Jesus here. And they, they tell him to call out, and then they run to get something for him to drink. Now, we learn from the other Gospels, Jesus spoke here and said, I thirst. And so they took this concoction, a sponge, soaked with wine, vinegar, eggs, and water, and they put it to his lips, and he drank this. Now, you have to think, why in the world? He's about to die He's about to be physical. He said, why did he do that? I think it was so he could wet his very dry lips, wet his very dry mouth, and cry out with great victory, it is finished. And he wanted everybody to hear it. And that's what he did. And then he chose to breathe his last. Never had that ever ...happened at a crucifixion. Never would it happen again. Most people hung there for days. They were fully conscious... ...and then they went into a coma... ...and if they wouldn't die... ...then they broke their legs... ...so they couldn't lift themselves to breathe anymore. That was the normal way people were crucified. Jesus had been on the cross since 9 a.m. And at 3, he says it is finished. He gives up his will. He gives up his life voluntarily... And he breathes his last. Immediately, the earth shook. And the temple of the curtain, the thick curtain of the temple, was split in half. It had separated man from the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies through Christ. Now we get to walk through that veil and have fellowship with our Creator who loves us. I want you to read verse 39 with me. So everybody find that in their Bible. Even if you have a different translation, we're going to read it. Ready? And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, everyone loudly, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. In light of that truth, we have to ask ourselves three questions. Why do I doubt the love of God? When I read the story, how can I doubt the love of God? When we get this way in our lives, look at the cross and be reassured. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves, how should I respond to the love of God? And again, look at the cross. Imitate the obedience of Christ. Commit yourself to the will of God according to his word. Imitate Jesus' humility, perseverance, obedience on the cross. And in what ways we can ask ourselves, am I again bound to my sin that Jesus died for You know, when we look at the cross, we have to realize, because we're a sinner, that we shared in the crucifixion of Christ. So why in the world, if we believe our sins put him there, and then he died for our sins, why would we continue to let our sin enslave us again? Jesus was bound that I might be free by this sacred purpose. Look at our last verse, the words of Christ himself. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for every truth in your word today. We call you holy, we call you good, we call you great, and we know you love us. May we walk in that love and shine the light on you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.